Mr. Tyrone. I'm Tyrone, a black man who was born and raised in the city of Chicago. I was framed and unjustly incarcerated 30 years ago. Currently, I'm housed at Safeville Correctional Center in Joliet, Illinois, working on regaining my freedom, as well as earning a college degree in the Northwestern University Prison Education Program, Empath. And I'm August, a white, queer, cis woman living in New Orleans, Louisiana. Tyrone and I came to know each other through a mutual friend who connected us as pen pals and decided to start this podcast to talk about the prison industrial complex and carceral logics, or all the ways that the ideas and practices of incarceration affect us. Whether you are currently incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, fighting the PIC, or feel like you're not directly connected to prisons or incarceration at all, carceral logics affect you and the ways you move through the world. Through this podcast, we'll interview all sorts of people connected to, thinking about, and fighting against the PIC and carceral logics. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Jennifer Lackey, one of Tyrone's former teachers and the founder of the Northwestern Prison Education Program. Our podcast transgresses prison walls, so you'll notice that the questions coming from Tyrone are more difficult to hear, but a transcript of all questions asked can be found by following the link in the show notes. Let's ask some questions about prison. Okay, will you start by introducing yourself? Yes, of course. Um, My name is Jennifer Lackey. Um, I'm the Wayne and Elizabeth Jones Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University. I've been a philosophy professor for um, a little over 20 years. And I'm also the director of the Northwestern Prison Education Program, which is affectionately known as NPEP. And it is the only degree-granting program in the state of Illinois that provides um, a comprehensive liberal arts education to people who are incarcerated. So we have a program outside um, that runs out of Stateville Correctional Center. We just launched a program for women at Logan Correctional Center. And we do non-degree but credit-bearing work at the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice. And we do certificate-granting work at the Cook County Department of Corrections. So will you tell us a little bit more about your work or your job, both at the university or with the the prison education program? Yes. So so I I, I kind of like to say that I have, you know, two, two different jobs. You know, I, my, my so-called day job is as a professor. Um, so I teach um, undergraduate students and graduate students. Um, and I taught um, at, at our law school this past uh, term a, a broad range of courses, you know, a, a, ranging from introductory level philosophy classes through graduate seminars. And I mean, I also just do you know, other professional um, activities. I edit to professional journals and um, I'm very, you know, involved in our professional organization. But the other hat that I wear is that I founded and I'm now the director of the Northwestern Prison Education Program. And as I mentioned, you know, our our primary aim is to provide a a very comprehensive um, college education to people who are incarcerated. So that involves not just offering courses, but to the extent that it's possible to provide the full college experience, um, you know, that 
to the extent that we can to people who are um, who are behind bars. And so um, we try to offer workshops and lecture series and we have tutoring and um, we have various kinds of you know sources of support. We've done mindfulness workshops and yoga workshops. And um, so we do as much as we can to provide uh, to, to, to have the students in our program be full-blown members of the Northwestern community, despite the fact that their physical, their physical proximity um, is, you know, is, is constrained um, in, 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 you know, in, in obvious ways. Will you tell us about your work on false confessions? Yeah, so um, this is actually um, a part of a, a bigger book project that I'm going to be writing um, over the next year. So I won a Guggenheim Fellowship and will be not teaching for the next 15 months so that I can hopefully complete a book that will include material on false confessions. So I'm interested broadly in, in my research in the phenomenon whereby our criminal legal system uses various kinds of techniques and tactics that are either manipulative, deceptive, or coercive. And in using those tactics, they extract certain kinds of speech from people um, or certain kinds of testimony. And then that extracted testimony is given this massive kind of evidential weight in um, like kind of criminal legal proceedings. So false confessions is, is a really powerful example. There are, you know, um, it's, it's kind of widely acknowledged that confession evidence is regarded quote and quote as the gold standard of evidence. And, and, you know, even historically it was, you know, called the queen of proof. So if you could get someone to confess to a crime that was regarded as, as the most powerful form of evidence you could have for guilt. Um, and in fact, it's regarded as so powerful that in many respects, it's not even treated as a sing, you know, single piece of evidence in the way a, a fingerprint might be regarded as, an, as a piece of evidence that needs further corroboration. Once someone confesses to a crime, um, in most cases, the case is closed and they now start to build the case for the prosecution. So, so, you know, this leads to a lot of tunnel vision. This leads to, you know, exculpatory evidence being, um, being missed or disregarded. And so what happens is, you know, there are, there's this, this technique called the read technique, which is oftentimes used in interrogations. And it's extremely effective at getting people to confess to crimes. It's just not effective at getting only guilty people to confess to crimes. And so um, what I look at is how this extracted testimony kind of bypasses or exploits or subverts um, speakers agency in ways that are, are really harmful. And then the speaker or the testifier is regarded as a truth teller only when that testimony is being offered. So someone might confess and then recant and deny for decades later. And all of that testimony that is not being offered under conditions of coercion, manipulation, or deception is you know, ignored or rejected, or they're regarded as a liar. Um, but that one moment of extracted testimony when they're not even functioning as an autonomous agent is regarded as indicative of their truest self, so to speak. And so I coin in my research um, the term agential testimonial injustice. And I say that when people are 
have their testimony extracted, and then it's given this what I call an unwarranted excess of credibility. When those two things are in place, then someone is the victim of what I call agential testimonial injustice. Their testimony is obtained in a way that bypasses or exploits their agency and is then given this unwarranted credibility access. So we see this in cases of uh, false confessions, but we also see this in a lot of cases of eyewitness testimony, which is similarly extracted. We see this in the case of plea deals. So my work on false confessions really is what inspired my thinking about this larger phenomenon that I think we see in various places in the criminal legal system. What has teaching in prison meant to you on a personal and professional level? Uh, it's been life-changing. I mean, it's been nothing short of life-changing. I mean, I went into Stateville um, I think the first time was in 2014, and I've essentially never left. Um, I went to teach a one-off philosophy course um, that wasn't going to be credit granting. It wasn't going to lead to a degree. It wasn't part of a program. It wasn't. It didn't have any, you know, kind of broad institutional support from Northwestern. I was just a, you know, a person with a PhD whose, you know, occupation is as a professor, and I went into Stateville to teach a one-off course essentially on my own. And that one course led to another course, and it led to another course, and then it led to the vision of, of NPAP, which is a full-blown college program. And I mean, now I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to, um, to see, you know, we, we offered last quarter thermodynamics and physics and drawing and journalism, African-American history, poetry, playwriting, television writing. I mean, these are the courses we've offered. So it's gone from like kind of a, a one-off, not even certificate granting experience to being um, full-blown Northwestern students, I think in the, in, in the most meaningful sense of that word that we can achieve within the constraints of the carceral system. Can you share with us how hard you had to fight for the obstacles you had to overcome to start an educational program in prison? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's been a complicated process, but I do have to say that I think the stars aligned in a way that made. So we did not. We officially launched in the fall of 2018. So we're a relatively new program, and I think that we've accomplished more um, than you know some programs I know of that have been in existence for 15 or 20 years. So um, I think part. Part of our success comes from, I think, broad commitment at the state level. I mean, I think that um, the Illinois Department of Corrections is supportive of our work. I mean, obviously, that doesn't mean that every person you meet, you know, is going to be, you know, happy that we're inside or happy that we're, you know, trying to bring in calculators or, you know, things that make the daily running of a prison challenging, right? And there's all sorts of ways in which we try to push, you know, I'm trying to get laptops inside the prison right now. You know, we, we, um, we donated D10 devices. So anytime you're bringing in electronic equipment, you know, there's a lot of different um, layers of security and just just procedures that you need to follow to, to kind of have those kind of new initiatives take shape. But I think that we provide for the Illinois Department of Corrections a free Northwestern education. You know, when you, when you look at how much this costs for people who are taking, you know, who, who are, who are um, you know, pursuing their education on the outside, it's, it's an extremely 
you know, costly uh, education that we're providing for free. And so I think that the Illinois Department of Corrections is is powerfully aware of the positive impacts of, of educational programming. Um, and so in many respects, we have been supported. I mean, I think that, you know, again, that doesn't mean that like every warden has been su as supportive as another or every, you know, kind of correctional officer that you meet is as supportive as the next one. But I think overall, our work is valued. And, you know, it really, I think most people now who have some connection with, you know, working inside prisons, is, is, is powerfully aware of all of the empirical data that supports this kind of work. I mean, so, you know, for every $1 you spend on prison education, you save four to $5 in reincarceration costs. You know, recidivism rates are dramatically lower for people who um, participate in post-secondary educational programming in prison. I mean, um, it, it, you know, kind of drops to 0% for people who get a master's degree and, for those who get a bachelor's degree, it's in the single digits, you know, about five, five percent. So, um, you know, I think that it really is kind of a win, win, win situation. You know, it's taken, I think that Northwestern, um, most of the people that I've worked with at Northwestern, most have seen the um, kind of the moral obligation that an institution with as many resources as Northwestern has um, to contribute to the community. I think most uh, administrators and most people who are in positions of power at the university have seen that, but not every single one. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, you know, it wouldn't be completely honest if I said that I had not encountered any resistance to the work that we're doing. I mean, that definitely is not the case. Um, and I certainly found differing degrees of support and enthusiasm. But overall, the administrators who, who have the power to, um, to really give our program the, the, you know, the authority and the legitimacy that it needs to move forward have been behind us. And that's what ma has, has made our work possible. Um, you know, we hope to confer our first associate degrees by the end of, uh, this, by the end of this calendar year. And then um, we hope to transition the students into working towards their bachelor's degrees. And so, you know, that we've been able to accomplish that much during a pandemic, you know, since launching in 2018. I mean, I, I think it's rather extraordinary, you know, and I, and I do, do think that I want to, you know, give appropriate credit to all of the administrators at both Northwestern and IDOC who have been, who have made our work possible. What led you to want to teach in prison? Well, I wouldn't say it was ever a matter of whether. For me, it was it was really always a matter of when. Um, I did some work in prisons like a long time ago. Actually, I mean, shockingly, it was when I was 12. And so I was kind of pretty powerfully aware of the injustices of incarceration and, um, you know, all of the systemic issues at work that lead people to be incarcerated um, for, for, for much of my life. I mean, this was not something that was sort of an abstract um, thought I I have felt the pull towards uh, of of somehow intervening in a positive way um, in in you know kind of all of these oppressive and you know kind of racist forces at work right and so um, for me I I mean I was aware of other prison education programs there are some that have been around I mean the ones that I'm aware of have been around over twenty years so I've I've known about these. 
and really was invested in getting involved in prison education. It was just a matter of when in my professional and personal life I could take on something as, as um, I didn't even, you know, when I was thinking about this, there was no way that I even would have anticipated how much this would end up um, being a part of my life. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I regularly put in over 40 hours a week into, into NPEP. And so uh, I just needed to find the time in my life, you know, after tenure and after, um, you know, kind of having the sort of professional security um, that I needed to take on this kind of commitment. And then also, I, you know, I have children. So I'm waiting until there was a moment in, in, in terms of raising my children when they were not as um, you know, dependent on me and I could take on something of this magnitude because it's not the sort of project that you want to walk in and then that you can step away from. I mean, it is, and, and it's every single day you have issues to address. I mean, we're running a college right now in a maximum security prison. And so all of the challenges, you know, did the students fulfill their gen, gen eds? You know, does the student need an incomplete? Does the student, I mean, every challenge you face on a college campus, we face, but we're also trying to do this within the constraints of a maximum security prison. And so, I mean, when I tell you that it is, you know, you, you know, when I go on vacation, I, I don't ever take a vacation from NPEP. You know, I, I still answer all of my emails in the mornings before I head out for the day. Um, I always have my cell phone and sometimes have to answer, um, you know, you know, dash off, you know, quick emails in response to issues that arise. Um, you know, as the as the founding director of this program, there are many um, concerns and questions that arise that not many other people, maybe even only I can answer. And so I really needed to find the right time when I could take on that kind of commitment. Would you be willing to tell us about that 12-year-old experience you had? Um, yeah, so... Um, I was, um, I was, you know, kind of in, in school and we all had to pick um, a community uh, service project for, um, for, you know, for school. And all of my, you know, friends were, you know, working in nursing homes or babysitting or, you know, kind of helping a neighbor with groceries. And I, um, you know, at the time was talking to my mother and said, I want to work with people who are incarcerated. And she was really rather, um, not not quite supportive of it, to be honest with you. I mean, I was I was quite young. I was a child. Um, and so um, she said, well, I mean, if that's really what you want to do, I, I would encourage you to kind of do that on your own, probably hoping that like it didn't go anywhere. And so um, I called information at that point. You could just use a pay, like a public payphone. <laughs> so I actually like by, in front of my school, there was a payphone and I walked over to it and I called information and got the address for the Cook County Jail. And I, because I grew up in Chicago, and so um, I wrote to the Cook County Jail. Uh, I remember vividly. I wrote on my my very beloved Care Bear stationery, <laughs> um, and um, they wrote back to me and said they would really love for me to work with the women. And so um, I volunteered. Um, at the in the women's division and they let me which was like kind of unheard of at the time I brought um, I baked cookies for them I would go visit and a lot of the women were separated from their own children and so I think particularly having a child you know volunteering with with incarcerated women was was a I think a, a powerful experience for many of them 
And so, and then I kind of had another kind of like brief, brief, brief moment of working at the Cook County Jail when I was in high school. Um, so it's been something that has been, you know, kind of on my radar. This is not something that I just kind of stumbled upon as an adult. Did I know that I would create a program like NPEP? Probably not. Um, probably in the abstract, it would have seemed a little overwhelming. But I am, it's probably the thing in my professional life that I'm most proud of. I mean, I've written books and I've written articles and I, I've, I've had incredible PhD students and I've, I've done, you know, I, I'm proud of all of that work, very proud of that work. But NPEP um, holds an incredibly special place in my heart. Talk to us about the expansion of MPAP to Logan, the women's prison. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're so delighted to be inside Logan. And I actually um, had my first in-person visit with the uh, um, Logan students just a few weeks ago. Um, so we conducted their interviews via Zoom because, you know, we were still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, part of the reason why we didn't launch with the women immediately was just because of its proximity, you know, to Chicago. I mean, it's just it's just much, much further. And so um, Stateville is about an hour and 20 minutes from Evanston. Logan is over three hours from Evanston. So, um, you know, a, a there and back kind of day, we're talking about, you know, you know, close to seven hours of driving, you know, but we I was absolutely committed. I said, I will not be the director of a program that does not educate women. I mean, this is this is just not. A, you know, an option. Um, and so, you know, we're still going to have to work out all of the logistics. I mean, probably what we will do when we're in person, which we hope will actually be quite soon. I mean, we're working out the details with Logan right now. Um, we are offering courses, but they're currently correspondence. And so right now we're offering two courses. The students are taking a math course and a course by a law professor called Conflict Resolution. And then um, last quarter, they took an art history course and expository writing um, so we, um, when we are in person, we're expecting, um, to have, you know, Northwestern faculty members and tutors there every week. Um, but, you know, for a professor teaching a single course, we might have an arrangement where they teach in person twice a month and then maybe via zoom twice a month, um, because of just the, the distance and on the days that the professor doesn't go, we'll probably have like a teaching assistant go so that the students do have in-person contact. Yeah, so we admitted um, 20, we, you know, we kind of got the applications originally last spring, but then COVID hit. So we had narrowed down the pool of applicants to 40 to interview, and then we just couldn't do the interviews. And so finally, we donated um, these two-way video conferencing devices to, to Logan, and we were able to conduct the interviews via Zoom um, several months ago. And then we offered admission to 20 students. So they just had their first quarter of college um, in the spring quarter. And, you know, we're delighted to, um, to have our program. I mean, there, I think the, um, I think many of the women feel that they have not um, had many educational opportunities. And particularly, I hear this from a lot of the students who have long sentences, they feel very forgotten, they feel um, very, you know, kind of cast to the side. Um, some of them describe just feeling warehoused because a lot of, if to the extent that there are opportunities, most of them go to people with shorter sentences. I, I mean, I've received countless letters just this past quarter from the, from the women in the cohort, just saying how life-changing the program has been just in the first quarter that they've been in it. It gives them, you know, a reason to get out of bed. It gives them something, you know, positive to share with their children. And so, um, 
You know, we're incredibly excited about our launch to Logan thus far, even given all of the constraints. I um, I did one-on-one -on -one check ins with the students when I was there a few weeks ago, and you know, kind of said, "Tell me what's working and tell me what's not." And I was really, and I, I can't take credit for this because we have a whole team of people working um, on supporting the Logan students. We have graduate students who have partnered each Logan student up with their own personal tutor who writes to them every single week. We have, you know, professors, you know, who are writing personal letters to each of the students each week. So, I mean, this is not something that I, I can take credit for, but I was really, really pleased and to, and to be honest with you, somewhat surprised at how the students were saying, like, I, I feel incredibly supported. I'm not really sure there's much more you could do, given that we're not in person. You know, I just felt, you know, kind of, you know, I, I was really concerned about launching a college program for students, many of whom have not been in a classroom for decades. Right. I was really concerned about doing that in a way that's correspondence based. And um, I just they've just been, they've just blown me away. They're, um, they're doing so well. And I'm, I'm just really thrilled with our expansion. What were the challenges for you and impacts faculty to keep impact operational during the COVID lockdown? Yeah, it was, in, it was really challenging. Um, I mean, I, I want to say that like ultimately being sort of on this side of it, seeing like the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm my my heart swells with pride at every person who is a part of this program, but it was really, really, really challenging. I mean, early on, um, you know that prisons were hit the hardest with COVID, the earliest. There was so much fear, there was so much uncertainty. I think I think at least twelve people at Stateville died from COVID. Some of our students, you know, kind of were were you know were were very very ill. You know, some of our students lost cell, beloved cellmates, and they were just reeling from the grief and the trauma. You know, I mean, you have to keep in mind this, these were the earliest days where people were like, "Oh my God, I lost my sense of smell. What does this mean?" And you know, we just didn't know much, and um, we didn't even know how to contain it. And I mean, we immediately went into, you know, fundraising mode. I think that like within the first couple of weeks of you know, kind of us, you know, knowing that COVID was inside of Stable, we raised thirty-five thousand dollars and bought hand sanitizer and masks. And, you know, I mean, we donated all of that to Stateville to try to keep our students safe. And, um, and, and the other men, of course, you know, incarcerated at Stateville, we donated it to, the, to, to everyone at the prison. <clears throat> and it was really, really difficult. It was challenging to, to continue. First of all, it was just challenging to make decisions about whether to continue moving forward with classes. So, you know, people deal with trauma in very different ways. You know, some people want to be very busy and want to have their mind taken off of the most immediate threat. And so continuing with classes is, um, is very welcome for those people because otherwise they're just sitting in their cells waiting to see if they get COVID. You know what I mean? Hearing the people two cells down coughing. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, some people were like, we want to keep up with a full load. Let's transition to correspondence immediately. And some, some of, you know, one of our students worked in the, um, you know, in the healthcare wing and was literally writing to me letters saying like, I moved X number of bodies. And, you know, there was a, a correctional officer who broke down and I had to console him. And, you know, I mean, you know, how do you manage a college program 
in the midst of this much tragedy and this scale of grief and this scale of, you know, kind of devastation. And so it took a while to kind of find our footing. I think ultimately we decided we never took a quarter off. Um, what we did was we said, you know, only enroll in the courses if you feel like you want to enroll in the courses. You you know, you can take incompletes, you can turn in work late. You know, so we had a lot of flexibility with existing courses and we um, made the enrollment in the other courses optional. I mean, I, I actually think that nearly all, if not all of our students enrolled in all of the courses. Um, I mean, it's, I, I always say that the NPEP students are some of the most kind of courageous, um, admirable, compassionate, strongest people I've ever met. And um, to see their resilience and their compassion to one another and, um, you know, their their motivation to, to, you know, kind of to continue to do something that for them is life changing, right? I mean, this education is, is, is a lifeline, I think was, was one of the most impressive acts of courage I've ever witnessed. And so I think also for many of the students having the letters back and forth. So when we switched over to correspondence, um, we immediately paired all of the students up with correspondence tutors. So every single student is getting weekly letters, not only from their professors. I send in a weekly letter as director of the program. I also respond to every personal letter that is sent to me. So the students are getting, you know, multiple individual letters every single week, plus general letters, you know, from their professors and from the director. And many of them wrote to me and said it it literally was a lifeline, not just metaphorically, but like literally the connection with NPEP is what is what in, like enabled me to to kind of hold on because there were many, many days, especially in those first months of COVID, where I think some of our students just, you know, wondered why they were fighting so hard, you know, to to, you know, to kind of hang on. It was, um, you know, it was complicated. It was challenging. It was heartbreaking. It was, you know, there were there were all sorts of, you know, kind of bumps in the road. But I think that we emerged from it an incredibly tight community. I know some of the students better now because I was in the prison, you know, let's say once a week, and I'd have forty students who would want to talk to me. So I'd have a couple of minutes here and a couple of minutes there, and and now for you know you know, what, 15 months, I've been corresponding with some of them, some of them write me four page letters a week. So it's in really interesting. I mean, in some ways, I mean, obviously, I, I would, you know, if I could turn back time, I mean, I would never have wanted this for any of us. But just trying to look at some of the silver linings, I think that there are ways in which we are closer as a community, because we persisted, and we dug deep, and we supported one another, and we cared for one another. Um, through, I think, some of the darkest days for, for many of us. When you have had opportunities to combine inside students with students on campus, how did that turn out? Without exception, those have been the best courses we've ever offered at Northwestern. I mean, without exception. So um, I did my first course with that format this past quarter, and it was a course called The Philosophy of Punishment and Incarceration. And we looked at a lot of the philosophical theories of punishment that ground, um, you know, kind of in, in many respects, not only kind of public consciousness about what punishment ought to be, but also like the carceral system, like retributivism or utilitarianism, and, you know, kind of looking at all of these 
these, you know, kind of theoretical underpinnings for what many of our students are living. And then this kind of the last third of the course, so, you know, we spent a lot of time working through a lot of those theories of punishment. And then I say the last maybe third to a half of the course, we looked at um, a lot of just kind of the empirical work on incarceration. We had one week where we looked at the pain of incarceration, you know, written by a psychologist who talks about, you know, kind of how psychologically harmful in, um, incarceration is. We looked at solitary confinement in that context. We looked at, you know, the role that race plays in incarceration. Um, we looked at uh, restorative justice frameworks. We looked at abolition. So, you know, kind of we looked at alternatives and I had alternatives to what what we you know what we're all you know kind of living in this in this current society and i broke all of these students into small groups so it would have some of the students on our evanston campus and then some of the npep students in it and each week they had to engage with one another on their reading reports so they'd have to do the readings do this reading report and then the way that we had the correspondence packets coming in and out of the prison and then scanned, the Evanston students would have access to their classmates kind of reading reports by Tuesday evening. And so then they would be able to, by Wednesday, um, have a direct response to those reading reports that they would submit on Wednesday, and then it would go out to the prison on Friday. And then the NPEP students could respond to their Evanston peers. So there was a tremendous amount of interaction. And it was wow, it just totally surpassed my expectations. I mean, all of the students just just knocked it out of the park in terms of that engagement. And again, I kind of want to say, you know, one thing I've learned, and it's interesting because some of the students said this to me, that written component existed because we were not able to be in person. But if I were to teach a course like this again, I would have a written component. So you learn some things, right? Because there are things that our students could say to one another that on paper, that probably would not be spoken in a classroom of 20 people. And so there was a kind of a depth to the conversation and authenticity to the conversations. And in many respects, like an intimacy to the conversations, you know, kind of sharing, you know, like, like the week we had on solitary confinement, many of the students shared their own experiences of being in solitary. And I don't know if they would have talked about it to that same extent, you know, kind of in person, you know, would they have um, felt comfortable, you know, kind of, I, I can think of some students off the top of my head who have just told me I'm better on on, on the page than I am in person, you know, in terms of being able to, to share, you know, and, and I, you know, I got my teaching evaluations from that class and, you know, nearly all of the students said it was the best class that they've taken at Northwestern. Some said this class should be mandatory for everyone who's at Northwestern. Um, so the ability to have students kind of NPEP students take classes with our, our, you know, kind of on-campus students is oftentimes for, for a professor, the most pedagogically meaningful experiences they've had, and for the for the students in both groups, I think the best you know kind of college courses that they've taken. I think both the NPEP students and the on-campus students absolutely love those those combined you know student class classroom experiences. We also offer every fall a course that has half JD students and half NPEP students in it. And that's incredible, right? I mean, these students are going to go on to become, you know, defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges. 
And to be learning about the law, you know, kind of next to people who are incarcerated, who are living the impact of some of their, you know, the actions that they might, you know, kind of be asked to, to undertake in their future careers will, you know, will radically change the way that they approach their, their work in the law. And so, you know, that's a course that has been enormously successful and that we're really, really, really proud to offer. Can you share with us how? Utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham ideas influence the United States on how to structure prisons. Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. So Jeremy Bentham is um, the father of utilitarianism, and utilitarianism is a broadly ethical theory that um, says that <clears throat> that we ought to kind of in order to um, kind of determine whether an action is, is morally right or morally good, we need to look at that in terms of consequences. So it's a, it's a paradigmatic consequentialist theory that says that you know, moral goodness or moral rightness is determined by consequences. The principle of utility says that what we ought to do is morally right actions ought to maximize utility. And utility for m many utilitarians is understood as pleasure so um, or happiness. So we ought to be, our actions ought to be maximizing pleasure or maximizing happiness. Um, in some respects, I mean, you know, there are some like obvious like benefits of utilitarianism, you know, like your, your happiness is just one kind of unit of happiness that matters in the overall calculation, right? Like your happiness is just, you know, is no more important. You don't weigh your own happiness any more, you know, any more than you weigh the happiness of others. What, what the ultimate goal is to maximize happiness. So it really does lend itself to this idea of like thinking about other people, right? As many other people as we can. Um, within the theories of punishment, the traditional views that are put at odds with one another are the retributivist view and the utilitarian view. So the retributivist says that punishment is a matter of, of, of desert, right? There are just some actions that deserve to be punished. And it doesn't actually really matter whether there is any social utility involved in that punishment. So suppose that I were to tell you, look, this person, you know, kind of committed this act of violence, right? But I can guarantee you that they will never harm another person, you know, that they have made amends with the family and the community, you know, um, for the retributivist, that doesn't really matter, right? I mean, just some actions deserve to be punished. And for the utilitarian, all that social utility is ultimately what matters for punishment. So we punish to, you know, to kind of prevent future crime. We, you know, we punish to deter, you know, would be, you know, kind of actors, right? You know, we see that utilitarian you kind of view at odds in, in, in the specific, specifically punishment um, literature as well, not just in the broadly ethical, you know, kind of in terms of ethical theories. Jeremy Bentham in particular is widely known for in the in about the mid 1700s kind of inventing a prison system that was called uh, the panopticon and um, Stateville has panopticons one of them is called uh, they, they call them at at Stateville they call them the roundhouse and um, I believe it was at the end of 2018 or 2019 um, governor, then Governor Rauner closed the last functioning 
um, panopticon we had due to humanitarian reasons, saying that it was not fit for, you know, kind of, you know, human beings to be living in. Um, unfortunately, they reopened the, pa- the the roundhouse at Stateville for COVID, and they put many of the people who were ill back in the panopticon. But the structure of it was, you know, kind of really designed to monitor and surveil the maximum number of people with the fewest amount of resources, where resources would be like, you know, you know, correctional officers or other kinds of security mechanisms. And so they're roundhouse. So imagine it's, you know, construction is round. It's a roundhouse. And in the center, you have a guard. And the windows are small so that, and far enough away from the cells, which kind of are all along, you know, kind of the, per, you know, the parameter of the building, um, and the cells are open, you know what I mean? They, they're bars, but, you know, kind of you can see inside of them. And the idea is supposed to be that at any given moment, you could be under surveillance. So, I mean, this was kind of before we had like cameras that, you know what I mean, where there's other forms of surveillance. This was kind of some of the first ways of thinking about being constantly, constantly under surveillance. And so at any moment, you know, you had no idea whether the correctional officer, the guard was watching you. And so um, it was supposed to be kind of, you know, a comprehensive, you know, kind of model uh, for maintaining, you know, kind of authority and discipline, right? Because it gets to the point where people just internalize that sense of being watched and you're maintaining social order and control through the internalization that people are, you know, kind of have because of this system. Bentham is, is widely known for utilitarianism, but the panopticon specifically is, is, you know, connected with prisons. And it's also very specifically connected to Stateville because my understanding was that Stateville had one of the last, if not the last, functioning panopticons in the world. And finally, what else would you like listeners to know or think about as they consider carceral logics or the U.S. justice or punishment system? Well, I mean, when I was teaching this class on the philosophy of punishment and incarceration, the fi- one of the final assignments I had the students do in small groups, so it had some of our on-campus students and some of our and PEP students <clears throat> was to do a group group project and they answered it had to answer the following questions you know should we punish first of all and if we say yes what should it look like and if you say no what should an alternative be and um you know one of the things i think i would like to leave people with is just the challenge to be bold and creative in what we imagine our world could be Right. I mean, it's like we have inherited a system of control, a punitive approach to um, a punitive approach to drug addiction. Right. A punitive approach to to poverty, you know, and some of the effects of drug addiction and poverty. We have, you know, allowed our system, our carceral system to disproportionately target communities of color. Right. And I think that we, in, by virtue of us inheriting this, it feels natural to a lot of people. It's hard to imagine that the world could be different. It's hard to imagine that we could 
have chosen to not punish, right? We could have chosen to have a very different way of responding to, um, you know, to wrongdoing broadly, right? And um, I think that, you know, when I taught this class, I was really struck by how much work it took for us to even just get to the place where we could imagine something different because it's so deeply ingrained in us that our response to people in our community, you know, um, doing things that are wrong is, you know, kind of has to be to exert social control. It has to be to inflict some kind of pain. It has to be, right? I mean, and that's so familiar to us that it takes deep, prolonged work to be bold and creative in our imagination of what the world could look like. And so um, I guess I would just invite all of us, you know, to think about, you know, what an alternative could really be, you know, first of all, should we punish? And I think that there are, that's a really deep question that we need to ask. I mean, is this really how we ought to be responding? And even if you say yes to that, um, does anyone think that punishment should look like what we have here in the United States, you know? Um, and so um, I guess I would just like to leave people with that thought, you know, to kind of just try to imagine what what alternative world we could live in um, that would be not only more compassionate and more restorative, but also more effective, right? I mean, what we're doing isn't working. I mean, not only is it, um, you know, not only is it in many respects, you know, cruel and, um, you know, completely, you know, kind of not restorative and not, you know, kind of, um, you know, it, it, you know, it, 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 it also just doesn't work, you know? And so, um, yeah, I guess that would just be the, the 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 final thought I would I would I would you know invite people to to think about. Well, Professor Lackey, thank you so much for coming on and being our first guest. It was incredible to talk to you, and thank you so much for all of your work um, creating and sustaining NPEP. I already know from talking with Tyrone how much it has meant to him personally and and yeah just really thank you so so much thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Jennifer Lackey here are a few questions to consider or discuss with others after listening to today's episode what does it mean about the PIC and the United States that it was NPEP an outside institution that provided personal protective equipment to the people incarcerated at Stateville Correctional Center during the COVID-19 lockdown, rather than the prison providing this equipment itself. Dr. Lackey talks about how, under the Panopticon, people eventually internalized the idea of being constantly surveyed and began to police their own actions in order to avoid potential punishment. Where else do you see this dynamic showing up in your life or in our culture? This podcast was made by Tyrone Daniels and me, August Smith. 
Thank you to Swan Flambe for making our gorgeous music, Dr. Jennifer Lackey for being so generous with her time and knowledge, and to my Uncle Rod for editing advice. Please support our podcast by subscribing and by sharing this episode with a friend. To directly support Tyrone, you can donate by following the link to his GoFundMe in the show notes. The link to our blog can be found in the notes as well, and if you want to get in touch with us, just email talkingwithtyrone at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.